When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Why? Why you following me? What are you th- uh. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My book just out is Talking Back, Talking Black which is designed to make you hear black English in a whole new way. And you know what? I'm going to devote this episode to the topic of that book. A teaser, as it were, on what Talking Back, Talking Black is about, and with sound clips, which you don't get in the book and wouldn't, even if there is an audio version. Linguists think of black English, or African-American vernacular English, as the academics call it, as an alternate but not broken grammar. But to most people, and really for quite understandable reasons, it seems like just slang for one thing, and then bad grammar. So, for example, let me just play a selection from Chance the Rapper and Jeremy, which is in good black English, and let's think about what the nature of grammar is. You listen to this, and yes, of course, what you hear is slang, and rules broken. There is a beautiful example of black English with a lot of the grammatical constructions that it might surprise you to know dissertations have been written about. And here we linguists are telling you that that is legitimate language. Now, my friend Jeff Pullum, who is one of the deans of linguists and writes a really nice column in the lingua franca section of the Chronicle of Higher Education, has gotten a letter recently from a person who thinks that we linguists are just playing kind of a shell game in saying that black English is legitimate speech. He says, I quote, speaking broken English is often a sign that the speaker is monolingual in broken English. And this person follows up with, sadly, rather than seeking to help such people, some in the linguistics profession see them as savages, as noble as those in the Amazon or New Guinea. Now, Jeff Pullum writes in his column in response to this, pure linguistic wisdom here, and I bow down to Jeff in all ways, but the truth is, what I'm going to read you is the kind of thing which I have noticed doesn't really seem to convince the general public about black English, but it would be wrong if I didn't give the standard argument first and nobody puts it better than Jeff. Jeff writes, 
Black English has some tricky grammar and phonology. A slew of constraints must be met before a form of be can be omitted, as in he crazy. Inter alia, the clause must be affirmative, present tense, and non-emphatic. The subject must not be first person singular, and the verb must not be clause final. Consonant dropping also has constraints. D is dropped in lend, but not in lead. T is dropped in left, but not lent. And there's specifiable phonological reasons. And in negative clauses, Black English regularly employs no words, where Standard English uses any words. And Black English inverts the order of subject and auxiliary, and so on. So what Jeff is getting across is that Black English, although it has different rules from Standard English, although, to put it preliminarily, it breaks Standard English rules, it does it in systematic fashion. You know what? I know that a lot of you aren't convinced by that because really you might reasonably say, okay, black English is systematic. It's systematically wrong. It's just like you wouldn't want to hear Chopin played on a toy piano. A toy piano is not a real piano, even though it may be complicated enough that few of us could build a toy piano. Talking Back Talking Black explains about five things, and one of them is why Black English deserves respect, even though it's different from Standard English, and even though it sounds like it's just breaking Standard English's rules. And here is the nut of it. The usual descriptions of how Black English is systematic nevertheless stress the cases where Black English doesn't do something that standard English does. So it sounds like all black English is, is breaking standard English's rules. And so, for example, you're leaving out the verb to be. Okay, you do it systematically, but, you know, the mafia is systematic too. Or you're dropping your D's and your T's. And you're thinking, well, where do they go? How come black people can't just pronounce them? And then you're not using the any words like anything. Instead, you're just using the no words. Why can't you use both? And so on. You can see long lists of these things that black English doesn't do. And the argument is supposed to be, but it's still legitimate because it doesn't do them in a systematic way. I can tell that that doesn't seem to quite work. So one thing that we might want to keep in mind about black English is that in many ways, it's more complicated than standard English, not less. But it's hard to hear those things because we're trained to think of black English as just slang and broken grammar. What are the sorts of things I mean? Let's go back to 1974. There is a little black boy in knee pants. He is me. He is standing in front of Carpenter's Woods down at the bottom of the Marion Lane cul-de-sac in West Mount Airy, Philadelphia. I remember exactly where this happened. A cousin of mine was visiting and we were about to go play in the woods and he was telling me something that had happened to him earlier that day. And I remember he put it something like this. And so we had gotten on our bikes and we had seen that the light was green. So we had went through the light and then something went boom and we looked behind us and somebody had fallen down and he wasn't really hurt. But we had gone over to him and he had said, head, 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 head. Now, I remember thinking, had, had, okay, get to the point. Something had happened, but what did happen? But the story just ended. He kept on saying, had, had, had. There was this perfect reality that he seemed to be living in. Now, back then, I didn't know linguistics from my elbow, but I thought to myself, I remember having this thought process. He's doing that so much 
And it's so clear that he's speaking fluently and confidently that this couldn't be wrong. It must be different. He's using had in a way that's different from anything I've ever noticed before. And that's as far as it went. But right then I was noticing something that linguists later actually noticed. Black English's narrative had. And what it is, is that it's not that it's a mistake. It's not that for some reason to be black is to somehow get hopped up on the pluperfect. It's that in black English, you have different kinds of past. You have our ordinary past where you're talking about something in the big surprise past. But then when you're telling a story, when you're stringing a sequence of events together, you use a different marker. What you would call, if this were a language none of us had ever heard of, the narrative past. There are languages that have a narrative past marker separate from the regular past marker. In black English, that marker is had. That's how it's used. So this is systematic. Now, make no mistake, nobody walks around thinking about it, white, black, black English speaker or not, but it's there. Now, there is a sense in the black community of this had as a kind of a joke, as a kind of slang. So, for example, listen to this clip from the late, great, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I never actually loved that show as much as I was supposed to. We'll get to another show of that time that I did love soon. But Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where Will Smith actually summons this usage. And notice how warmly the audience laughs, which shows that it's a thing in the minds of especially many black people. He is discovered at a party that he's not supposed to be at, and he pops up from behind a bar and says, Um, see what had happened at first was, <laughs> see, at first I was at the game, but then a sniper came. And, and um, the coach had got shot. Everybody thinks of that as funny, but that is very authentic that he would start that out with what had happened was. And then he's going to start telling stories and about sequential events. That's an aspect of black English that sounds like it's just something raggedy, but actually it's more complex than the way you do such things in standard English. Here's another example. Let's listen to how he goes on again, Will Smith, and notice another usage that we hear as just a blurp but that really is something that would challenge somebody who set out to describe black English who didn't know standard English existed. Now, come on now. If this was two months ago, by now, I'd have been up in this party in my drawers doing the Tootsie Roll. <laughs> okay, you hear that? Up. Up what? They don't seem to be up. I mean, that scene may take place on the upper floor of something, but you can just tell that they're actually on the ground floor. Another example of that usage of up. Once I was listening to somebody tell a story about what had been a pretty good party, and he said, there was butt naked people up in my house. Now, I knew because I had been to his house once that his house was on the first floor. There's nothing up about it. I don't think there was even a basement, but they were up in his house. Now, what does that usage of up mean? Now, you might think, well, it's just slang, but notice that you would have a hard time telling somebody just when to use that up. It's not just when there's a party, because somebody might say, I ain't got no food up in my house. Now, if that's true, chances that there's a party going on are slim, and yet that is an ordinary sentence of black English. If you listen to how that up is used, just one sentence after another, you realize that once again, it has this very specialized usage that you would never think of as how something that's supposedly just slang and bad grammar works. It indicates intimacy, 
intimacy of the setting. You talk about up when you're talking about something going on where everybody is comfortable together. There's a certain coherence. And so up in my house because it's my house. Up at the party because the party is supposed to be about feelings of togetherness and warmth and maybe even extreme togetherness. But not we was up at the dentist when not up. You're never up at the dentist unless the dentist happens to, for some reason, be up on a hill. But you're not up in that metaphorical way at the dentist because you're not comfortable there. Very few people hang out at the dentist's office. And so no up. Incidentally, up is understudied. And I ask anybody who might be hearing this, do you have any sense of how far back that goes? Is it used in white Englishes? What is the history of this up? Because it's a very subtle usage, and it's one of many things that makes Black English more complex than we might think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One more example is how black English handles pronouns. For example, we must get to the subject of buttocks. Let us listen again, for example, to Mr. Chance the Rapper and Mr. Jeremy and this rap sequence. Now, that was pretty quick. And so let me read to you exactly what the lyrics were. Of course, there is a certain flavor that I'm not going to be able to summon. But for heuristic purposes, why your ass working that same old tired ass job? They ain't fire your ass in 08. Now I'm about to show your ass should have worked above your ass. I ain't trying to find your ass no way. I have just become Peter Sellers in being there. I don't know what that says about my life. But in any case, here's the question. What is ass in those sentences? Because it's not literal. You know, why your ass working that same old tired ass job? Why your ass working? Well, the buttocks are not working the job. And so the sentence doesn't really mean why are your buttocks plying a trade or they ain't fire your ass in 08. Well, you don't fire only a person's behind. You have to fire the whole person. If you think about it, they fire your ass. The your ass is a pronoun. Why your ass working that same old tired ass job? Why are you working? Now, we're so used to hearing it that we just figure, well, that's something black people do and a lot of white people too, especially more and more lately. But imagine if you're a Martian or just imagine if you're, I don't know, you're Nepalese. The point being that Imagine if you're somebody who's never heard English and it happens that you encounter the English of somebody in a certain neighborhood of Oakland rather than a certain neighborhood of Greenwich, Connecticut. And you just figure, well, here's English and you're going to figure things out. Imagine dealing with that usage of ass. You figure out that ass refers to the gluteal region. But then you have people using it in this weird way. You would have to work at that. That's complicated. Yet anybody who's black just knows. Another example. I was watching a play once 
and it was actually for children. And the lead in the play was a white female person of probably about 24. If you want to imagine her, imagine roughly、um, Alexis Bledel from the Gilmore Girls. That's what she kind of looked like and came off as. But as it happened, she actually had grown up in Switzerland. She was actually a little more Swiss than English, and so her English was ninety nine point ninety eight percent perfect. You would never have known, except every now and then, I heard in rehearsals she had made cute little mistakes. And so one of her lines was, "So how do you like them apples?" And at first, she had read it. So how do you like them apples? Which makes perfect sense because you know, the play wasn't about apples. Life rarely is, and she hadn't ever quite picked up that now. Slightly archaic twee expression, and so at first she said, "So how do you like them apples?" in a perfect American accent, but it sounded really bizarre. So she had to be told, "It's how do you like them apples?" There's something in Black English that's kind of like that too. I want to play you a clip from the '90s Black sitcom that I absolutely adored. That really people outside of a certain set, i.e., Black people, don't seem to have cared about, and that is Living Single. It actually predated Friends by a bit, but was kind of a Black Friends, and it was just a perfect bonbon. It's like if you ever had a bad Dove bar, there was never a bad Living Single. Queen Latifah, Kim Fields, Erica Alexander, and Kim Coles just batted it out of the park for every delightful little episode of that show. This is from the first one, and listen to what Queen Latifah as Khadija says. To the Kim Fields character, who is not Tootie, who you may remember on the roller skates from Facts of Life, but is now playing Ray Jean. Here is what Khadija says. You know, I don't know how you got to be so snooty. You ain't but one generation out the projects your damn self. Projects your damn self, not your damn self, your damn self. That's the way it's pronounced. It's one of these stress things. Now imagine seeing that in the script of a play. If you weren't acculturated to a certain extent, you'd have to be told your damn self, which is not horrible, but really the way it's said is your damn self. So black English isn't just breaking standard English's rules; it's got stuff of its own, which is complicated in the way that anything in a language is complicated. But nobody ever tells us because we are trained to only hear black people speaking as using slang and breaking rules. Here's another way that Black English is language. It changes over time in the exact same ways as all human speech does. So, the analogy is with a wonderful book that I found in one of those dreary antique shops somewhere. Somewhere I don't even remember where it was now, but it was written in 1885, and it's written by one William Henry P. Fife. Fife spelled P-H-Y-F-E, which always looks to me kind of like Fife. It's a book called "How Should I Pronounce," and he is teaching us how the cultivated person should pronounce things if they don't want to be taken as a ruffian. And here is somebody who had another book called "Seven Thousand Words," often mispronounced, which means that he really did think people were straying. But nevertheless, this book was written for real people, and it went through several editions. So we have to assume that it represented how, for example, people in Edith Wharton. Novels would actually have spoken if they wanted to be taken seriously. To assemble a paragraph that includes the kinds of words that he gives us very careful instruction as to how to pronounce. This is how you were supposed to say things in the Gilded Age in the United States. One might compensate for celibacy 
by sampling a juicy nectarine or buy a balcony seat and take in a melodrama. That would be better than making do with a canine, despicable, dishonest person seeking to isolate you. Certain things must take precedence over others, my dear. All of those words, that's how you were supposed to pronounce them. Nobody would think of it today because there's a randomness to sound change. It's the same with black English. And so, for example, if you listen to black American people talking on ancient recordings, I don't mean 1950, I mean 1894, then you're waiting for black people to sound a certain way, but they don't. And at first you think, well, maybe it's only that black person. But after a while, you realize all black people in recordings back then sound that way, which is not the way black people today sound. So, for example, George Johnson, a name so generic that it's difficult for it to sit in the memory for long. But George Johnson was a famous black singer and comedian. He's born in 1846. There are recordings of him starting in the early 1890s. I believe he is the first black voice that can ever be heard. And he sings songs. But, you know, if you weren't told that he was black, I don't think most of us would necessarily know. And so, for example, here he is singing a song. And the song itself is not very interesting to us today. But listen to the way he says, lady, marry me. An answer is no. I know little lady that lives in our street and when she is amusing, cannot give up me. I ask her that she marry me and very soon I will marry you, my dear. You do without Hear that? Lady, marry me. The answer is no. If anything, he sounds like somebody from Fargo. And you think at first, well, maybe there was something strange about George Johnson because you can't shed all of your expectations with every little hair that's out of place. But, you know, there are a lot of recordings of people who were born as slash lived as slaves. In the 1930s and 1940s, there were people who were still alive at the time and you could record them. And so. For example, Fountain Hughes, and this is a man, not a woman, Fountain Hughes, born in 1848, was interviewed in 1949. So we can hear a person talking who had lived in slavery and long enough to have full, pretty much adult memories of what it was like. Listen to him talking about some things that happened to him. I know, I remember one night I was out. After uh, I was free and I didn't have nowhere to go, I didn't have nowhere to sleep, I didn't know what to do. My brother and I were together. So we knew a man that had a, a living stable. And we crept in that yard and got in one of the hacks like an automobile and slept in that hack all night long. Livery stable and so on. Once again, you would almost swear you were listening to, in many aspects of his vowels, somebody from what, Ireland or Scotland. He certainly doesn't sound like Jamie Foxx. This is not what we would think of as a black voice today. Well, why? Partly because the Gullah Creole that black people still speak today in islands off of South Carolina and Georgia was somewhat more widespread way back in the day, and even where Gullah itself wasn't spoken, it affected the way black English was spoken. And Gullah, 
really is a kind of West Indian patois. So to the extent that you might hear George Johnson and Fountain Hughes as sounding kind of Jamaican, there's a reason. And then another part of it really is just chance. Vowels are always changing. Today's mainstream English vowels are not the vowels of the past. I've discussed that on this podcast before. And today's black English vowels could never be the same vowels as the ones that they were 100 and 125 years ago. So black English isn't just slang and broken rules. Black English is living, complexly interacting vowels buzzing around in black mouths, just like vowels buzz around in the mouths of people of all of those other colors. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And finally, here's something that's a little odd about Black English and its story and how we perceive it that I discuss in the book. And that is that we justifiably bristle today at the way Black people were depicted speaking in minstrel shows. You can see it in old movies. You can listen to some things that Al Jolson tosses off in recordings and in movies. And it's well known that there was this way of talking that was plastered onto depictions of black people with black people themselves having to talk that way as often as not. But you know what's interesting about minstrel speech is that although it certainly was exaggerated, there are aspects of it that really just reflect that black people in the 1800s spoke differently than they speak today. So, for example, in Alex Haley's book Roots, my mother made me read the whole thing. And I'm glad she did, although at the time the book was you know, practically the size of me. That was a lot. Of course, had to watch it on TV, but then I had to read the whole book. At one point in the book, when emancipation comes down, Haley has the slave saying, Freedom am one, freedom am one. I remember when I was 11 or 12 reading that and thinking, that's not right. Nobody would say freedom am one today. And I had a sense that black English was different. I mean, this was now years after me standing in front of the woods listening to narrative had. But the idea of somebody saying freedom am one rather than freedom is one, I thought, no, that's Alex Haley, even him having a slightly distorted sense of what black speech is. I thought he was just trying to make them sound kind of different because it was a long time ago. But you know, Alex Haley actually, big surprise, was correct in that depiction of how somebody would have said that in exactly that setting. So for example, here are actual white minstrels doing their routine. Nowadays, it's so easy for me to let you hear this selection of people speaking in 1894. Here they are, and you can listen to, among other things, that am. We hear that am and we think of that as one of the things. Nobody walked around and said am. You know, stop making fun. Or here is a selection from a cartoon 
It is Buzzy the Crow. This is a series we don't hear from much these days from the people who did Casper the Friendly Ghost. There was also Buzzy the Black Crow. They didn't call him that, but there was that Black Crow tradition back then that we're familiar with from Dumbo. Well, Buzzy is black. His voice is being done, by the way, by somebody who we are more familiar with as doing the voice of Bluto slash Brutus in Popeye cartoons to show you how versatile those people were. But in any case, here's Buzzy. And he sang something about a cat who smokes too much. Don't ask, but it's from a cartoon of 1954. Uh That cat am a tobacco-smoking fiend. That's all I have to know. Am a smoking fiend. And so we think, well, that's not true. You know what? It actually was. So, for example, Harriet Barrett was a slave. She was born in 1851. They interviewed her in 1937. There is not the recording, but there's an accurate transcription of the recording. And she said, and people says now that Aunt Harriet am the best cook in Madisonville. That's what she said. Or charcoal and honey and onions for the little baby am good. I have no idea how that would work. I haven't fed any of my children charcoal yet, but let's assume she was right. And to be pointy headed and linguistic about it, charcoal and honey and onions for the little baby am good. Now, there are too many of those ams in the transcription of Harriet Barrett for it to have been made up. And the people who transcribed it were not committed to making fun of anyone. And the truth is you find those ams all over these transcriptions. Or Claude McKay of the Harlem Renaissance wrote Home to Harlem in 1928. This man was not trying to make fun of the poor Southern blacks who he chronicled and was depicting their lives in Harlem after the Great Migration. He depicted their speech as honestly and lovingly as he could. He wasn't a linguist or anthropologist, but what's important is that the characters in Home from Harlem, the poor black characters, use am in that way all the time. And we know that Claude McKay was not trying to make those characters talk like minstrel caricatures. Oh, these here am different chippies, I tell you. And chippies was roughly, you know, honeys, you know, women. Oh, these here am different chippies, I tell you. Not is, but am. Or at one point, somebody is on the street and they say, Lordy, though how the brown-skinned babies am humping it along. Today, it's hard to even say it because nobody uses that anymore. But back then, it's quite clear from home to Harlem that that was something you heard among black people all the time. So these days, it would be is. Back then, it was am. The language changes. You can learn more about these things in a certain And I should mention that there is an article in Linguistics Flagship Journal Language by my once and future dissertation advisor and mentor John Rickford with Sharice King. And it's called Language and Linguistics on Trial, Hearing Rachel Gentile and Other Vernacular Speakers in the Courtroom and Beyond. And at the Linguistics Society of America meeting this month, yes, there is such a society. That is where we all meet every year right after New Year's. This article got the award for the best article that appeared in the journal Language in 2016. And that was among a great many articles because the journal is quarterly and it is thick enough to hurt a bit if you drop it on your foot. I ain't never lay your ass, I ain't never lay your ass, I ain't never lay your ass, no way. Why your ass working that same old tight ass job, they ain't fire your ass, no way. Nah, man, I saw your ass, should've walked by your ass, I ain't trying to find your ass, no way. Got too many bodies, you would throw it. Recipes are great, David Bowie. Please, can we get back, friends? 
tell us your thoughts about the show, you can reach us up in here at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show is edited by Mike Wolo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. I should have loved you. Huh, huh.